You're listening to the Foreign and International Medical Graduate Show, a podcast to inspire physicians in the process of immigration to the United States and access to graduate medical education. We create meaningful and helpful content that motivates medical students and doctors throughout the world with the goal of creating a community that supports itself and gives feedback to each other, that stays updated with the most recent tips and advice on how to make it in America and become a successful resident or fellow in the speciality of your dreams. Dr. Alonso Osorio is board certified and residency trained in both emergency and family medicine and will be bringing you 20 years of his personal experiences, struggles and motivation. We'll be chatting with people like you to talk about the lessons they've learned along their personal path, how to make an impact and how we can all benefit from it. Also, we'll analyze the current resources available and how to benefit from them. Thanks for joining us. Please enjoy the show. Hello, everybody, and here we are with Mr. Jonathan Rios to record episode number 17. First of all, I want to keep you up to date on what's been going on currently in our website and what's been happening on our podcast. I can tell you that our cloud provider, Lipsing, Liberated Syndication, comes with daily stats on our metrics and the foreign and international medical graduate is about to reach 2,000 all-time downloads. Just for the month of February of 2020, we reached 1,291, almost going above and beyond January that had 360 ones for the month in total. So we triplicated the amount of downloads. And in December, in just obviously one day, we did only 140, but just for March, we have 145, so just keep them coming. Episodes number 13, 14, and 15 have been released literally back-to-back. I hope that everybody gets to listen to them all, download them, give me some feedback. Obviously, it will help me to get up on the rankings to get a five-star review. You think that I deserve it. And also leave a comment on the Apple's iTunes podcast application where I am available. Remember, I'm not only an Apple, I'm also through the LipSync feed that is posted on my website. Uh, you can find it on Facebook and Instagram, and you can also find me in a Stitcher Radio, which is free, Spotify, and SoundCloud. So with that having been said, I have Mr. Jonathan Rios. He's uh, calling us today via Zoom from uh, Monterrey, Mexico. And Jonathan and I go back about 10 years, Jonathan? Yeah, that's correct. You remember how we met? Yeah, it was one of my shifts in, in Methodist Hospital, I believe. Correct, in San Antonio, Texas, right? Yeah, San Antonio, Texas. Were you doing an observership or were you actually already no, working I, as a scribe? I was working for as a scribe at Scribe America, I believe it was the company. Yes. And I, I think I, I met you my first week on the job. It was it was interesting. <laughs> it was my I, first time in a hospital setting, so I was trying to recruit you to work for my company back then. You know, Ghostcrest I think has been up now for we're going on the eighth year this year. And um despite the fact that I'm not in San Antonio, we're trying to keep it running still with Claudia Spinoza as the head oh, of really? the operations, yes. She's now an, a nurse and I love her so much. I'm the padrino of the godfather of her child. So, Jonathan, you're going to obtain in the next few years a degree of medico y cirujano and partero, you know, a labor mm-hmm. and delivery doctor in Universidad de, uh, de Monterrey. And you've been there since 2015. And obviously, your expected graduation date, uh, what you call the not real graduation is 2020 because mm-hmm. you still have the rural service right. and the internship and the rural service coming up, right? So. Right. We brought in Jonathan to tell us about his uh, particular experience of what it's been like living the U.S. as a United States citizen, going to medical school in Monterrey, and now thinking about coming back. So, Jonathan, let us know how this uh, motivation happened and what was the initial spark that was going inside of you to get to where you are today. Well, I've always wanted to be a doctor. Ever since I was little, I've always had that inspiration to be a a doctor and help people. And for some reason, just before I started the university, and I think that was around 2012, I thought it was a great idea to go into psychology instead of my biology and my minor in chemistry, like most uh, U.S. citizens to get into med school and uh, pre-med, it's called, I believe. And then 
I entered as a psychology major for, I think I lasted two weeks before I was like, no, this isn't for me. I'm going back to try and be a doctor. And I started at the university as a, I switched to my biology major with a minor in chemistry and it was going good. I went three years with that degree. I wasn't able to finish it because around the third year, I was seeing that I was paying a lot for school. Well, the university is really expensive. In the U.S. Since I was in the U.S., since I was in Incarnate Word, it's really expensive since the private school. And I was paying it for the money I earned from Scrab America plus the scholarships I received. And I was able to afford it. But I was like, why am I still paying so much for the university? And it's not even medical school yet. And my mom and a friend of ours is a Dr. Hakis. He's a doctor from here, from Monterrey, Mexico. He graduated from Harvard. And he's a family friend. He recommended the university. He's like, you should go and check out the university. They have a good international program. You can come back when you're done. And honestly, I didn't really think about it much. I was like, okay, let's see how much it costs and all that. And it was more than half the price of the university we're going. Let's say I was paying 26 in San Antonio. Here I'd pay around, I think it's, when I started, it was around six, five or $6,000. So it was way cheaper. $26,000 per year. Over there in San Antonio, per year, correct. Versus $6,000 for private school. Is it Monterrey private or public? It's private. Okay, so for private schools, $6,000 a year, which is still is a lot of money, I think. It's a lot of money. But for a private school and an already starting medical school, not just a biology degree, I think it was pretty decent. Since I was looking at the prices for the medical schools in the U.S., and they're some pretty crazy numbers from what I, was, what I saw back then. And I, when I applied, I was like, okay, I'm going to give a shot. I'm going to apply. I took it, their entrance exam, which isn't any, it's not the MCAT or anything like that. It's just a basic uh, university entrance exam. It's not as difficult as an MCAT. So I took it. I got accepted. And then I applied for the scholarship over here. And I got a 75% scholarship. I was like, okay, this might work out. And I started talking to the doctors here and they gave me more information about coming back to the U.S. They explained that they have an internship programs. After over here for in the Universidad de Monterrey, they have five years of classes and rotations, then your year of internship, and then your year of social service. In the year of internship, they have a lot of study abroads. Pretty much, they'd send us to hospitals. They have a hospital. They have like two or three hospitals in Houston, in France, in Italy, and in Spain. And I believe they just opened up a hospital in Israel. So I like their international program because I wanted to come back. I've always had the idea to go back to the U.S. when I was done. So that's what motivated me even more to enter to apply to the school. Honestly, when I entered, I didn't really think of the language barrier since I I speak Spanish fluently. I read it. I write it but I've always lived in the United States. I've never had classes in Spanish, nor had to read medical books in Spanish. So when I got here, the first semester I decided to come, it was like a culture shock. It was really, really hard for me. The first two semesters, the third semester I still struggled, but the first and second semester when I got hit with anatomy, where our doctor, Dr. Rodolfo, he was an older gentleman roughly around 60 something 70 something he put our first class i remember it very vividly i lost you in very vividly that you remember you i remember very vividly well my first class i remember the doctor he put a picture of the skull of a part of the bone of the skull he literally put it on the present presentation on the projector and it was a picture from the 1960s i believe it was a really old black and white picture and he talked an hour and a half over that one picture. And I was trying to take notes in Spanish while my brain was trying to process everything in English. I couldn't keep up with the writing in Spanish while I was trying to think of everything he was saying in English. So it took me forever to really get the hang of how to learn in Spanish. Were you getting headaches during that process of yes. translation? Right? I went through the same it's- process. It's rather interesting. So mine was opposite from Spanish to English. Mm-hmm. And then years, you know, you were born and grew yeah. up learning, thinking in English. Now you had to translate everything in Spanish, right? Yeah, it was really hard for me at the beginning. I've always been able to speak Spanish since my mom and my dad always spoke to me in Spanish since I was little. And I've read Spanish here and there. 
And I've been able to write it since I took courses here and there, Spanish one, two, three in college and high school. And it was easy for me. And I could still write it, except I always, the grammar, I'm still struggling in it since it has a lot of accents. And the first couple of semesters, I really struggled. Wow. Seeing so. You said that you decided to go to Mexico. When you were looking at potentially saving money on medical school loans, you consider potentially going to the Caribbean or the Antilles or anything like that? Or were you straightforward with the goal set in Mexico? It was straightforward since I have family over here in Monterrey, Mexico. So they were able to help me a lot in living and I didn't have to spend on that over here. And since I didn't really know the doctor recommended another school, I just saw this one and I started investigating about it and it interested me the way they, their program was. I liked it and I liked that we had a lot of hands-on experience in the hospital and all that. So that's what motivated me to more come here. I didn't really look outside of the city since I didn't want to have burdened my family with expenses, more expenses than they need to. Sure. So the current burden on medical school loans is going to be much less. Are you paying cash as you go or you still requested credit for this education? No. As of right now, uh, with my parents' help and a little bit of scholarship, I was able to pay. I'm paying uh, payments, monthly payments. Awesome. So the loans are going to be pretty minimal. Yeah. For our uh, non-medical speakers and for those that don't understand how the process works in the United States, United States graduate, if they decide to go to medical school in the U.S., usually they have to have a four-year degree of what we call undergraduate medical education, which Jonathan was accomplishing in private university at the Incarnate Word. And after that, uh, they usually apply to medical school. What we have seen over the last few years is that getting into medical school has become remarkably competitive. And these applicants into med school are forced not only to go for an extra degree after undergrad, they usually do a master in public care, a master's in business administration, or some sort of healthcare-related degree, just with the purpose to strengthen their CV. And during that process, they not only do that, but they try to do a lot of observership and cross-training in jobs like medical scribing and volunteering uh, work, with institutions or research. So for Jonathan, he realized that uh, going to med school in the U.S. is, first of all, very expensive. I would say average debt of an American grad when finishing medical school could be close to a quarter million dollars, Jonathan? Yeah, probably around there, give or take. Give it a take. Uh, yeah. I've seen that some universities for around 60000 a year, 40000 a year. And that's just the cheaper ones. I've seen some pretty high. Pretty high. And with those loans, you obviously pay for schooling, daily expenses, mm-hmm. rent, and whatever you need to survive. And obviously, Correct. you're not going overboard. And that's, that's the amount of money that you walk out. So these American grads finish medical school and they come up with very good salaries, but they're paying for the first 10, 20 15 years of their career towards that loan with an interest that is not as high as any other loans out there, but it becomes a a significant burden for them. So that's one of the reasons why they look into highly competitive specialties that pay quite a bit of money because when they do sometimes their calculations in their mind, if they're going to go into primary care and they're going to be probably paying half of that money towards medical school loans, they know what's going to be like, and they think about doing something else. No matter what, uh, you made a very wise decision. Would you advise anyone that has the opportunity to go to Mexico to take the pathway that you decided to fulfill? I would advise them to, if they choose this pathway to come to Mexico, to make sure their Spanish is ready and make sure they have studied enough Spanish, taking courses in Spanish, since that's where it got me. My GPA right now isn't Right now, my the semesters, the last couple semesters, my GPA is pretty good. It's not the top of the class, but it's decent. But the first semesters, I really struggled with it due to the language barrier, should I say. So if they want to come this route, I recommend it due to the money. You save a lot of money coming this way. But make sure the university is will help you be able to get into the finish study for the boards. Make sure you, your Spanish is good enough to be able to study over here. Amazing. And 
So you are exactly what I call an international medical graduate, a United States citizen that went to medical educations overseas and is returning to the healthcare system. So you will be treated with the certification pathway through the Educational Commission for Foreign Medical Graduates, the ECFMG, mm -hmm. correct? Correct. While the American grads go through the USMLE. Mm -hmm. So that's our parenting organization for credentialing of foreign medical grads. And as we spoke in a prior episode, the ECFMG just makes sure that we meet all the basic standards of education necessary to practice medicine safely in the United States. And obviously, they want to make sure that the American patients feel that these uh, immigrant grads have enough knowledge to be cared for. So I think it's great to have those, these ruling institutions, but at the same time, it's very competitive. So you and I have been speaking over the last uh, few weeks regarding what's going to be the process of you to study towards taking the USMLEs in the next few years. Last okay. week specifically, we brought up your question to Dr. Dara on how to accomplish that. You said that your university was willing to assist you with the USMLE preparation via Kaplan course if you qualified for doing so. Can you tell us more about how you're gonna take on this process and what's your final assessment after this weekend that just went by? Well, my university has this program for the last couple of semester students and the students are in the internship already that they're willing to pay for the one, step two, and step three of the exams, plus the course, the Kaplan course for the step one. But you have to meet the minimum requirement of taking diagnostic tests and pass with a certain score. Well, they gave me the option, they gave me about four days to decide whether I wanted to accept this, but the catch was I needed to present the exam before December 31st of this year, which means I would have roughly a little bit over six months to prepare for the exam and take it while I'm still in classes. So I went ahead and take a diagnostic test by myself instead of from the school. That way I'll, I'll see if I needed to do it or need to study more or how. I took it and I saw that my score didn't meet the requirements. I was off by a couple points, but I thought, okay, I need a couple points. They stated that if you take the diagnostic test by Kaplan, it's estimated if you study for about six months, you'll go up about 20 points. So from my criteria, I got around well, it was 40-something. I don't remember the exact number. I had, that means I'm still not in the passing range. So I wanted to give it a little bit of extra time to the studying to make sure my first step one is actually my good step one. And I don't have a low score. Good. Where do you see potentially your deficiencies were on? I think you and I had said that probably basic sciences were not that basic strong. Basic sciences, of course. Yeah, basic science over here, since it's more clinical than basic sciences in Mexico, and I believe in Latin America, it's more based in clinical than basic sciences. That's where most of us, most of us suffer. I have a lot of classmates who took the, the diagnostic test last semester, and they all got lower scores due to the fact that we're not very well prepared for the basic sciences. Even our medical school director is trying to work with the program to switch it up to make it better that way. But basic sciences is what really got me. So to our listeners out there in Colombia, anywhere in the world, please listen to this advice and how difficult it is. We have deficiencies in basic sciences. So it's extremely important to be ready, gauge yourself and know where you're standing before you jump into taking a test that might potentially lead you to a failing score, you know, and I suppose that by the time you take it, it's going to be only the pass and fail option, not a three digit number, correct? Well, I'm still debating since the, the past fail, since the past fail starts in January of 2022, I believe I read, uh, I was thinking of taking it in my internship, depending on which hospital I was able to choose from. Over here, we have the options of going into a private hospital, a public hospital, or into the international ones. I've heard a lot of recommendations for the students that go into the international ones, such as Houston hospitals, that they have a lot of study time. So I was thinking about taking my step one towards the last couple months of my internship. If I get into Houston or a private hospital over here, which is they also give you a lot of study time, I'll be able to study and then present it, present the exam by the end of that year, by the end of 2021. But if I get into a public hospital, they don't give you a lot of study time since they keep you working most of the hours. It's long hours. 
they're always doing paperwork for the doctors, always helping, assisting in different procedures. And it's more hands-on, but it keeps you too busy to study. And you're, by the end of the day, you're tired and you're not going to be able to study. So if I end up in a public hospital for my internship, I was, my choice is to study during my social service and take it with the pass-fail score. That's what I did. I, I uh, did a step one during the observerships in Miami. And when I came back to my rural service in Colombia, I took a step two. And then by the very end of the rural service, I took a step three. Have you thought about taking a step three even before you apply to a residency th- uh, program or just wait on it? I'm not sure. I haven't thought about that one yet. Right now, I'm trying to focus on step one and get through that one. And then I'll figure out about the next couple. How do you feel about the passing failed score? Do you think that's encouraging, discouraging? You think it's going to affect us? What's your perspective on that? In a way, I feel like it's good since that means the U.S. medical schools will be better prepared clinically instead of just basic sciences. But I feel it's going to affect us as foreign medical grads since they're not just going to look at our step one score. Now they're going to start looking at our GPA, our investigations we've done, research papers, other things. So as foreign medical grads, we'll have to find a new way to stand out than just a high grade. For example, since I'm not too sure about when I'm going to be taking the exam and I don't want to take the pass-fail without a good curriculum, I've already started to look out for doctors that I know that are, are into investigations and research. So I've already spoken out to a couple of doctors. They've already given me the okay that I can help them. But I'm still working on that to upgrade my curriculum just in case I'm in the pass-fail score. I'll have a better outcome. Awesome. So sitting down and having these considerations is going to be extremely crucial because Jonathan is going to literally focus and concentrate during the next year or so on having the highest score possible to get a pass rate on the USMLE step one. And then after that, you can actually probably relax a little bit more and do a little bit of what you're thinking, either research or volunteering or Try to strengthen your CV, work with some other doctors, etc. So as an FMG coming into Houston, you're going to be doing hands-on clinical rotations in American hospitals or it's going to be observerships? No, it's just observership. I've heard it's stated as an observership in Houston, but I've heard from previous medical students that have gone through that, that it is an observership, but if you show the doctors that you are interested, that you study daily, that you know the procedures and stuff, they will give you an opportunity to help here and there, but it is more of an observership role. How do you feel these observerships uh, are panning out for foreign medical graduates? I'm hearing that they're more limited, they're more scarce, they're harder to get into, and if you find someone on your own, they're rather expensive. What's your take on, on that? Uh, I believe it was when I spoke with you about a, two years ago or so, you recommended me I look for an observership, and I did so. I looked for them, but they're really expensive for about a month. I forgot how much they were charging. I think they wanted around two, three thousand or so around. It was, it's very expensive to have just a couple hours rotation a week. So I tried, I didn't want to burden my family more. So I tried to find a new way to get more hands on. So you're one of our speakers that I will, uh, I like to bring into a show to speak about what's their current experience of what they're looking into. And I love the planning process and really understanding the limitations that you have, especially on knowledge and the scheduling of the timeline projection. For our listeners that will be listening to this show, the prior episode with Dr. Shea Data, she actually concentrates on doing a lot of this individual coaching for foreign and international medical graduates, how to approach that timeline. And she is the person that we actually use to advise you on that specific question that you had on how to approach it. And I'm going to tell you through, I think it's the wisest choice because it's going to just give you an edge and probably give you more time to not only finish your studies, go through your internship and sit down in a more relaxed fashion for mm-hmm. step one. So the experience in Mexico has been fantastic. You said that uh, the clinical experience has been phenomenal. It's actually really amazing. I like it since we start rotations, our sixth semester out of 10, we already start rotating through hospitals. Our first semester, it's just family medicine. They just teach you how to explore a patient, right? From head to toe, all the basics. And then as we go along, 
we start rotating. We rotate in just about every every class. If we have neurology, we rotate through neurology. If we have cardiology, we rotate through cardiology. Hematology, uh, pneumology. We rotate in just about every class. So it gives you a little bit of experience everywhere. That's what I like. The only downfall is every now and then you do get a doctor in the clinic that doesn't really help you, help you grow. So they'll just have you stand there and just listen. So it's not that very hands-on sometimes, but even listening to the patient consults, you get an idea. So if a patient comes in for a certain disease, you start hearing the medications that they use more often. And then you go home and then you're like, okay, he's using medication. Why is he using that medication? And you go into the books and you read. That way, next time you see a patient, oh, you're like, okay, it's going to be that medication for that reason. And that's why I like It's very hands-on. I've, had, I've been able to enter a lot of surgeries. I've been able to help out in surgeries. I've been able to do procedures. They've taught me how to take blood gases. All, all the little basic stuff that you need to know, it's, they can help you during the rotation, which is nice. You and I work together uh, shoulder to shoulder, taking care mm -hmm. of American patients. Obviously, they're remarkably different when compared to the uh, Mexican patients. Uh, yeah. How do you feel about that? Uh, do you think you're going to see now another cultural shock when you come back and become a doctor in the U.S.? Yes, I feel like I'm going to get cultural shock to learn the ways that they do everything over there. Since over here, it's more clinically based instead of taking wide, a wide uh, span of labs. Over here, it's, okay, you have this. We're going to look for this and this, only this. We're not going to expand, take 20 labs to see what comes out. It's more direct and to the point. That way, they don't, you know, over here, they try to not waste resources since it's limited in private hospitals and public hospitals. So it's more direct, and you have to know what you're going in to look for. So when I go over there, I know the doc more doctors are more, okay, take a little bit of this, this, and this, and this. Let's see what comes out. And over here, it's more than, no, you can't take that. It's higher probability of having this instead of the other one. So we're going to look for just this. And if that comes out negative, then we'll start looking for the other options. You know what makes the huge gap in between that thought process and the American one, the approach? The lawyers are in between. <laughs> so for our listeners, that's a topic that we have not spoken about, but medical liability. And it's a huge deal in America. In Texas, is the only state of the nation, I think one of two or three that has a true tort reform in which the physician cannot be really sued. I mean, everything is possible, but they willingly and wantonly have to prove that you wanted to harm them. In Florida, right now, there is a cap of economical manage, uh, damages, but non-economical damages sometimes could be way above and beyond your malpractice insurance coverage. So that thought process of sending an umbrella, a blanket of tests, unnecessary caskets and unnecessary uh, medication sometimes is more sometimes to cover your rear end more than practicing good medicine. And the U.S. patients don't forgive a mistake. Unfortunately, in my specialty, emergency medicine, I have 30 seconds to get a report, three hours to make a diagnosis and an assessment. And then if things don't go the way, they expect it. If you don't have a good relationship or, or they don't like the way you treated them, they just go to an attorney and they just find a reason why you didn't fulfill the standard of care. So in Colombia, when I train, like you did, I told my patients, ma'am, it's most likely this. I don't see the need for a CAT scan or any blood work or a urine test that is unnecessary or a LFTs that are not indicated for your cough and runny nose. And here you get a CBC, which is a complete blood count, a comprehensive metabolic count, all these expensive tests that just make the healthcare more expensive. And as you said, we have to really count the beans and, and be really careful in how we spend our technology and our money in, in the hospitals in Mexico, Central America, and South America, just for the purpose of this example, correct? Correct. Yeah, over here, with the private hospitals I've been to, it's a lot like a U.S. hospital. It's a lot like, okay, we're going to get you a little bit of everything since the private hospitals are more pricey and it's not, it's the patients that are paying. It's more like a U.S. hospital. So I've seen a lot that the private hospitals can compare pretty good to the U.S. hospitals since they're the, the wealthier patients, should I say. So you have the, the money, you can get the best care and you can get the mm -hmm. most amount of testing. It's like right. in America, if you have insurance, 
And if you have good insurance, the possibility okay. of getting more testing is significant. Another phenomenon here in the U.S. Uh, for our listeners is that going to the emergency department is remarkably expensive. I took my son to the emergency department last December for a couple of MRIs that they did because he was having weakness in the right upper extremity. They did a brain and a cervical spine MRI. It was about $12,000 plus after the insurance negotiated the rate. My bill, I think, is my responsibility is about $3,900, which I still feel is quite insane. But the way the hospitals make money here is because there is a huge proportion of people that are uninsured. So let's say, for example, Jonathan comes to the emergency room and has an acute medical emergency and he has insurance. He will be billed probably three times more the cost of an outpatient test to overcome the lack of collection for those patients without insurance that cannot afford to pay. So the hospitals will be making money no matter what from the very top for what we have done for them. And this is just driving the, the cost of healthcare up north and the insurance companies are trying to restrict us more. Those are the kind of limitations we're dealing with. And I really miss uh, clinical medicine. Any other pointers or, or, or frustrations or things that you have seen down there that will probably make you a stronger doctor in America or a weakness of what you have done so far that could not help you or give you an edge? I like that over here, it's very patient to patient. Over here, since the sixth semester when we start, they teach us how to take a proper medical history and all, and talk to the patients correctly. They would send us out as, as students, say, okay, find yourself a patient. Take the full history of the patient. When you walk in, you're going to explain everything to me and from head to toe, and you're going to help me lead this consultation. That way, our clinical skills, the way we talk to patients, it starts from the Pretty much the sixth semester till the end, we're already working on our patient, our doctor and patient. The relationship, the rapport. relationship, that correct. So and, I and feel I like think, that's going to help. We're us good at it, and patients yeah. love us, and we love them, and we have a close relationship here. It is remarkable. Yeah. And over here, that a lot of patients more in private hospitals, since they're not people with a lot of money, they see us doctors as wow they're really smart they're going to help us and they're always really nice to us they always want accept our advice even though they don't always listen to it they always ask us if they have questions about anything so i feel like our relationships with patients over here is a lot more i feel like it's more outgoing than over there that it's more direct and oh hi how are you okay this that and to the point over here even though the private they only have a certain amount of time to see patients I know doctors that know all their patients from names to families to their favorite foods, and they're always talking. And I, I love that relationship they have with the patients here and the way they teach us to have the relationship with the patient. So I think that's a really good point over here. I just know that going back, the, the culture shock of the new style of medicine is going to hit me. But that's why I'm hoping my internship, I can get the internship in Houston or if I can open up one in San Antonio. I can get that experience. So by the time I go in, I don't struggle. And I'm already getting back to the, the way that it works down there. So in your timeline, you're thinking about coming here, do your internship, hopefully in some hospitals in Houston, maybe some rotations back in Mexico. Then after that, hopefully you get a step one all taken care of. Will you be heading back to your rural service in, in Monterrey or in the rural area of Monterrey? The same way we choose internship is the way we choose our service. We go from the highest GPA to the lowest GPA. So they put us all in a giant auditorium and be okay. 90, yeah, over here they don't do 3.5, 4.0. They go by 99, 96, our average. So our this generation was 144 students. There was 145 internships available. So it's very limited and they go up from the top down and people went all over the world and some stayed here. And it's the same thing for the service. It goes from the highest GPA to lowest GPA. And you can get, there's, I think, four positions that work inside the university. Uh, that's where you do your service, which isn't that hard. It's just paperwork. Others that they do send you out to little towns where I've heard a couple of doctors, not from my school, but from others I've worked with that they literally have to fly to another city, take a bus to get to the little town. And from the little town, they have to have the people help them take 
them to the actual clinic, which is further down the road. It's not very urbanized yet. Unfortunately, I probably have to stay here and do the, the service. If it all works out, I get a good clinic in the city. I think doing the rural service in, in Latin America, Central America, or Mexico is the most rewarding experience that I have ever had as a physician. I literally felt so enriched by these people. And they're so humble and sometimes so poor. And they're so appreciative to the little that you have to offer. Especially you get to see medical conditions that you will never be exposed ever again in the United States. And you literally forget what it's like not having the basic human needs, food, shelter, water. You see horrible conditions like basic stuff like parasites, malnutrition, you know. And it really changed my life. And I feel really proud of having done that. So if you can get it done, I think it's going to really, really enrich you to get you ready for the residency process in America. I have had a lot of doctors tell me that their best part, the best part of doing the service is not only seeing the people that look up to you and look for you. They treat you like one of the top leaders of the little town since it's a doctor, the priest, and the mayor, so to say. And the doctors say, apart from that, that they look up to you. It's also really rewarding to learn on your own. Since you're in a little town where sometimes there's no service, you have to know everything. You have to be able to help to attend a birth or to even give a medication that you probably wouldn't use in a rural setting, in an urban setting, since the certain diseases are, are in the city are not going to be in the little towns. So you have to learn a little bit of everything and really learn to be your own doctor without looking for help from other classmates or other doctors around you. What keeps your motivation going? What keeps that fire inside of you to keep fighting and pursuing and taking on one adversity after the other into one challenge and the other? What's the morning thought every day that gets you ready to keep going? Honestly, last time, about a year ago, I started struggling because classes were getting hard. It was about seven or eight classes, plus the rotations, plus over here we have Guardias, which is where you go to the hospital at night, stay from seven at night to seven in the morning, and then you take off to your clinical rotation, which is from eight to 12, and you head to class, and then you can finally go home when you're done with classes. And that's where it really hit me when I was really tired and I really couldn't do it because I still had to study and all that. I just knew that after all this, it's going to be worth it. After the long hours, after all the studying you're going to put in, I know at the end, my family's going to be proud of me. I'm going to be able to help patients that need me. That they, a lot of people look up to Dr. Sins. They know the, how much work we put in to get to where we are, or where, to where you are, Dr. Sorry. A lot of work, years of studying, years of work to get there. So my motivation is apart from my family, which has always helped me, been there for me. I want to show them that I could make it, even though it's a very long career, that I could make it. And I want to prove to myself that I made it, even though it's really hard to get back to the U.S. and get a residency down there. That's my motivation to finish everything I started. I know that you want to become a board-certified residency trained emergency mm -hmm. physician. That's your number one sure. choice. Have you thought about a second choice or a third choice in case that well, doesn't go that way? I haven't really thought about it. I know I need to, but ever since I did the uh, scribing uh, in the ER, I really love that setting. I love that everything is fast-paced. You get a little bit of everything. You can get neuro. You can get gastro. You can get a little bit of everything, and that's what I really liked about that. And I like that you're not sitting at a desk waiting for something to happen. If something comes in, you're already working. You're seeing two patients at a time, you get to move around. I like that setting. I like the setting that you're always on the move. You don't have to sit and wait and think about it. So as of right now, your emergency medicine is my, my goal, my specialty of choice. But I know I'll probably look for one or two other specialties just in case, or just in case while I get to my main goal. Okay. We were talking the other day about fulfilling your dreams, and I didn't ask you this question with the purpose of discouraging you. And I would be more than excited to see you succeed as an emergency physician and, and having you as a colleague here in the United States, and why not working together again? By the way, that hospital in, in San Antonio that we worked at, Metropolitan Methodist, uh, that's one of the craziest hospitals that I ever worked at, because despite the fact that it's a little thing in downtown San Antonio, the amount of pathology that we saw 
I don't think I have ever seen it all together with such a high degree of acuity anywhere else where I worked in the U.S., not even right now in a level two trauma center. Yeah, we got a little bit of everything. That's, that's what got me interested. It is awesome. It's, and, and we were always speaking in Spanish to our patients. I know. I found uh, rather amazing, right? And as I described, it was really amazing since I was at the downtown one and also at the Northeast one. At the Northeast hospital, there wasn't a lot of Spanish-speaking doctors or nurses. So I was scribing for a doctor and then a nurse would come in, hey, Jonathan, can you come help me out? We have a Spanish speaker. I was like, okay, I'll leave my work and go help them out and come back. Because it's always it's a good thing to know more than one language, especially in the medical field. Yeah, Northeast, so always, Northeast Methodist was a fun hospital as well. I really like it, but it was a different, a different crowd. It was a different, yeah, it was a different crowd. Awesome. Yeah, the downtown was always more exciting. More exciting, right? And Stone Oak Hospital is a whole different population, yeah, like upper, upper class San Antonio. So you're going to make it in America. I, I hope that you do that. How you're thinking is getting those amazing letters of recommendations that will allow you to get into emergency medicine. What are you thinking so far that you're going to re- need and require? No, there is a recommendation. I'm since. My goal right now is to go to the internship over there. So that was one way of trying to get letters from over there. And if that doesn't go, I was trying to, I'll probably have to get an observership or some sort of rotation down there to meet more doctors on there. Otherwise, it's going to be really hard for me to get a letters of recommendation from U.S. doctors. Because over here, I have plenty of doctors, but it's better to have the U.S. letters of recommendation than from where you're from foreign. It's been an exciting path. So based on your experience of what it's been like to be in Mexico right now, what would you say, three things, to an American grad or a foreign medical grad that wants to succeed in the United States, what should take into account? What are your tips of advice? For the, to get to the, back to the U.S. or? Yeah, to make it in America. Probably, you have to be better than the U.S. residents. I mean, better than the U.S. students. So it's a lot of studying. We're going to have to really work for our position down there. We're going to have to, when we get the opportunity to have a rotation down there, we have to be able to show the doctors that we work with, that we're, we're shadowing to this and the observership that we know everything that the U.S. students know. But we know a little bit more. So we have to be able to go above and beyond the normal than what the U.S. students do. And finally, honestly, it's just we have to get to work. We have to learn the basics that we didn't learn but while we do that we can also reinforce a little bit of our clinical and that will give us the edge at the end i completely agree that's what i did i I knew i was weak in uh, basic sciences and i had so many gaps when i opened this book like the usmle the review the big one how do you Mm -hmm. call it us first aid first aid it was so complex and i saw myself remarkably overwhelmed by all the graphs and the deficiencies and the uh, mnemonics and the acronyms and this and that and I'm like, I don't think I know any of this. So I had to go back and do pharmacology, microbiology, mm-hmm. pathology, histology, embryology, you name it, anatomy, and learn it all over again. So I read through the whole book of that specific specialty during the whole year. And then actually starting for the USMLE, step one was six months of dedicated USMLE studying with question banks. What I've been doing, since I'm still in classes, I'm, right now I'm taking psychiatry as one of my classes. What I've been doing, since psychiatry is one of the, one of the subjects, or it's in the first aid, what I did, I opened up the first aid, and as I'm seeing psychotic uh, medication, I go ahead and look at first aid while I'm studying for my class, and my notes have literally screenshots of the book on my notes. That way, so when I study, I'm also learning the mnemonics of the first aid. So when I go back later on, I'm like, okay, I remember that. I was studying that during the, for this exam. So a little bit, I learned to do this towards the end of the, my five years here, but it's always good to study for the class you're taking with the first aid. So when you go back later, you'll remember it a little bit better. Got That's it. what I started doing. Before we wrap it up, I want to ask you two questions in one. What has been so far in Mexico, the experience, the number one experience that you can highlight that has been the most emotional of them all that has really changed you and what has been the saddest moment and that you have felt at the lowest during these last five years down there? Well, 
So we, let's start with the saddest. <laughs> so the saddest moment when I, I think it was when I first got here, I didn't do well in anatomy. That was the first class I've ever failed in my entire life. And it hit me. It hit me really hard since I've always been a good student. I've always done good in school. For me to fail a class was, it destroyed me. I was ready to go back. I was already thinking of plan B to not do medical school to get out of here. I couldn't do it. I, was, I got, it really hit me. So I struggled. I struggled to get back. But my family really pushed me to stay. They're like, no, stay. You can do it. You can do it. You do it. And next semester, yeah, I passed anatomy with a high grade and so on. But I think that failing really got to me. And that's where I, that, that was my lowest point. I was ready to leave. I didn't want to leave the bed. I, I didn't want to go to school. I didn't want to do anything. But I knew I had to get up and get to work. My parents are helping me here. I got to do it. I got to get through this. You so think that was you, my lowest You were depressed for a little bit or just uh, like a, a probably, transient mood disorder, like a temporary transient, adjustment? Temporary. Adjustment, yeah. Because mm -hmm. it was due to the culture shock. It wasn't really just me. It was, I didn't know the language right. I didn't know how to study it. So I think that's what he, that's what he get out of here. But it was more of a transient mood since it was due to the problems with the language barrier and all that. But the idea of dropping out, going to some easier career really hit me due to me failing. I've never failed and that that was it for me. So that was but the lowest. I'm here now. I'm here now and I'm I'm almost done theoretically with classes. And next year hopefully I'll be in my internship somewhere in the US. And what has been the the highest moment of joy? Highest moment? I was doing my rotation in hematology and oncology with pediatric. And we had a patient that had, I'm not sure what type of leukemia, leukemia it was, but he was there in, in the hospital for weeks and weeks. And I got to see him for two weeks. And I went back later on and I saw that he wasn't there anymore. But I really had a connection with this patient since I was there when they did all the all the chemotherapies, when they do intrathecal chemotherapies. And I saw him suffer. I saw him, how he went from being a happy kid to really sad, really tired, that he couldn't do anything. But last time I saw him, he was sad, but he looked at us. I was with me, two other classmates, and the doctor in charge. And he looked at the doctor and was like, thank you, doctor. And he hugged her and smiled and was really thankful for everything they were doing for him. And I, that really hit me. I was like, wow, we're actually doing, helping people get better, make them feel better. So I saw him from his lowest to when he was feeling better, more happy, back to being his joyful self. He was probably, what, six, seven years old. And he was, that's where it hit me. I was like, okay, we're doing something good here. We have to keep doing this. Wow, that's really moving. I'm trying to put myself spiritually in those type of circumstances. And I think we harden up as we get older, just not to get so emotional with every patient that we see, because uh, sometimes coping and dealing with stress is something that you really need to kind of develop. What have you done for wellness to stay well, fresh? Eating I, good tequila, being <laughs> a good lover. What's the clip? No, uh, I started... For a while, I stopped doing, I used to love going running. I used to play soccer. I used to go love playing soccer. I fortunately lost, I hurt my ACL. And since then, I, struggled, I can't really play my soccer right. So what I do, I just go out for runs. When I'm really stressed or, or like right now that I don't have morning rotations, I wake up and I go up for a run, at least 30, 45 minute run. And I come back, take a shower, get something to eat, and then take off to school to study. So I want to say it's really good to go out running and find something to get your mind off of just medical because it gets overwhelming of so much information that you're trying to cram in. I go out running. I Sometimes I go do weights, but I'm not very much a weight person. So I exercise. And then at night, I normally give myself about 30 minutes. Sometimes if I'm lucky in a time, an hour, watch a show or something to get clear my mind before I go to bed. And then redo that every day. Yeah. The only thing is sometimes it's hard to eat healthy since you're always at school or in the hospital. So wherever you can find some a healthy meal, it's always appreciated. Too. Well, a, a healthy like taco can be found anywhere, right? Oh, yeah. That's that, what I'm Especially here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Awesome. So it's been awesome. How old you are now? I'm 25. I think we met, met 
when we were close to like probably 19, 18 years old, Jonathan? I, was, I think I, I just turned 20 when you I met just you. just turned 20. Yeah. So it's been five years in the making. You mm -hmm. obviously have not changed. No, I hope to see you soon. I mean, I know we have awesome. established some sort of connection over the last few years. Any other thing that you would like yes. to say before we wrap it up and say yes, goodbye to our listeners? I'm just saying that, well, we have to get to studying and get it. And even if we don't make it to where we want right away, we have to just keep pushing through it because at the end it'll be worth it. So listeners, the most important message, not only about listening people's stories in my podcast, is about trying to get the very f small tips of advice on how they overcome adversity, where they get the motivation from. They've been down, they've been up, they are looking forward towards the future, and they have obviously overcome many adversities. Many of us take this route for financial reasons. Many of us take it for cultural reasons, for family reasons. And God knows where, where the Lord will take us. But uh, I'm just impressed by the way what you have accomplished this far. And I'm looking forward to probably bring you in the future again when you'll be a board-certified residency-trained emergency doctor to tell us if we're still around <laughs> what it was like to finally reach the peak of that uh, success and, and just whew, get that weight off your shoulders, right? Yes, that'd be amazing. And two people that you want to really thank for in your life right now that you're thankful for or two or three people? My parents. My parents have been there when I've been at my lowest and have supported me on my decision to come down here and, and try to complete my goals and my dreams of becoming a physician. So my, give my parents every, all the thanks in the world. Uh, so to your parents, obviously. To my parents. Well, with that being said, we're going to say goodbye for now. After the last hour, I was extremely excited to have Jonathan here with us. My webpage is completely redone and updated. So go to my page at fmg-imgcast.com. I have some few tips of advice. I was working all this morning trying to kind of get a YouTube channel going on. I'm going to tell you the truth. I have spent five hours of my time trying to figure out the computers and, and the system, but I guess it's part of the process of bringing free content for you guys. One thing I'm going to ask from you all, a call to action is leave me feedback, leave me a question, leave me a topic that you would like to discuss. I think since Jonathan brought it up, I think medical liability in the United States is going to be a phenomenal topic to touch on, and I think everybody will enjoy it. So I'm going to start doing my reading my preparation and kind of bring you some good information. I'm still in the lookout for an immigration attorney to come into the show to tell us about the many possibilities of immigration that foreign medical graduates and international medical graduates have uh, in the U.S. So that's another one to do, but we'll keep bringing material and keep you guys posted and, and keep you engaged and like us, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and thank you for being there. Thank you, Jonathan, again, for taking an hour and a half of your time to be here for us. Thank you, Dr. Sir, for having me. I wish you so much luck, and I know you're going to accomplish all your dreams. We'll stay in touch, okay, buddy? Okay, thank you, Dr. Cuídate. Bye.